The talk tonight is about genuine love and genuine wisdom. When we teach a loving-kindness retreat, it's important to keep in mind the context of how um, it was originally taught. So the Buddha didn't just teach metta, for example, or loving-kindness, but he taught four what is called uh, four divine homes or four divine abodes, Brahma, Vihara. Brahma meaning divine, Vihara meaning home. So it's, it's very important to just always keep in mind the context that the loving kindness is meant to be uh, one of four, and we will offer the teachings of all four. Um, we won't overwhelm you with too much, but it's just important to remember that the first one, metta, or loving kindness, is love infused with wisdom. So when we, when we say loving kindness, it's not... Um, sometimes how we translate these things is difficult because uh, it's very specifically meant to be... Uh, not just an ordinary kind of love, and it's not saying that an ordinary kind of love is bad or wrong, but it's really a love infused with wisdom, and therefore actually can be genuinely unconditional. And as you see, as you've done a day of practice here, you'll get a sense of maybe glimpses of the the unconditional, but we'll often see also a lot of what is conditional. And that that is the process. One starts to be able to have the courage and the strength to see the conditional and the way we control through love versus uh, love that's balanced with the wisdom. Which this is what the talk is about tonight. But just to also hold in mind that the next Brahma Vihara is Karuna, compassion. And what's said is that by beginning with loving-kindness and establishing a connection with the openness of heart, the friendliness of heart, this unconditional love, that we can also access caring about pain in this world. So it's orienting this openness of heart toward any pain in the world, physical, mental, emotional, in oneself or others, and caring about it. So one isn't lost in the pain, but the awareness, which is, is, feels wonderful, it feels wonderful to care about pain. And then the next Brahma Vihara, and as you hear them, you start to understand why it's important to hear all four. The third is orienting this openness of heart again, as we've established in the metta practice or loving-kindness practice, it's orienting toward joy and appreciating it. So any joy in our lives, physical, emotional, mental. So it's not shying away at all from joy and sorrow or running away. It's learning how to be open-hearted with wisdom so we don't get lost in controlling pleasure, pain, and then it's, it's really starting to appreciate that we can care about pain, appreciate joy. And the last is upeka, 
and that's an, it's equanimity. It's no matter how much, there's a range of joy and sorrow in this world, the way of the world. There, there is this evenness of awareness. There's an impartiality, not indifference or reactiveness, of being with the nature of how things are, with peace, with unconditional acceptance. So it's said that this fourth requires the most understanding, the most wisdom. When we do the loving-kindness practice, you can see as our teaching um, evolves over time, you might say this is a metta retreat or loving-kindness retreat with um, a lot of emphasis on wisdom. Because you see they're inseparable. Of course, we can also talk about them separately. So last night I mentioned how when loving-kindness is genuine and strong, it actually feels like you're in a hammock. It feels like you're being held. Loving-kindness is what holds the universe together. It's the fabric of the universe. And you can say that it holds us so that we can actually face how things are the nature of how things are. Without the kindness, without the care, without the appreciative joy, you know, we don't have the strength or the courage to be with things as they are. Probably my uh, favorite description of how important love and wisdom are is from an Indian saint named Srinasargadatta Maharaj, and he said, love tells me I'm everything. Now that's a beautiful definition. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. That's quite a definition. Which one do you like? (laughs) You know, we love love. Oh, that sounds great. (laughs) Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. (laughs) Maybe I'll deal with that next year. You know, it's really, this this is the paradox we're born into. And it's when there's a maturing of understanding this. Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. There's that integration. And we're we're attempting to teach it more and more as an integration, but also understanding that we can discern them and practice both individually. You can say that love and wisdom are two truths. And the truth isn't something that we make up. It's something that we remember. So we can't teach you truth we create the conditions so that we can rediscover and re-remember what is true. We can't make truth happen. We can't make the loving kindness or the wisdom happen, but certainly we can put ourselves in an incubator, like, like a retreat like this, uh, just like any kind of greenhouse or anything like that. You see that you create the conditions for a lot of growth through the protection 
of the incubator or the protection of the greenhouse. So another way you can look at love tells me I'm everything. One can really look at love from many different angles. It's, it's, it's realization. It's realization. We see ourselves in, in another. And we see another in ourself. It's, it's that profound. There is no sense of separation. One year I was doing a retreat here and I was just walking from lunch out the back and down the cement um, walkway into the annex and just as I was about to step on the first step I saw one ant and I was so quiet and I just, I just had this moment. You know, it's like we get these glimpses but just this moment of seeing how much that ant wanted to live and how much I wanted to live. And that there's just no difference. You know, just I didn't, I, there was just no sense of anything but that understanding how really deeply connected we were and how easy, I just had that sense of how easy it is to step in them. And for some reason, it hit me so hard. I went into my room and I cried for a couple hours, just like there was some kind of just understanding of the whole thing. You know, you can't put these glimpses into words, but you know you've touched into the truth of something. And we practice for those. We don't only practice for those. They just happen. I didn't make it happen. In fact, it seemed like I was kind of full. I ate too much that day, and I was kind of rolling down the walkway, and, you know, just happened. And also we're here to learn how to be with boredom and anger, nostalgia, sentimentality. We're here to learn how to go through everything, betrayal, joy, equanimity, compassion. It's like it's not a state-oriented practice. We're learning how to have a relationship with our experience, no matter what it is, of kindness. And then wisdom of understanding. So the, the main, of course we've said this already, but the main point of the, the metta practice in this context is to really start to see the relationship between kindness and interest. And the relationship between kindness and courage. So if you, if you, again, just in the course of the next day, start to see, it's not that we can say exactly what kindness is, but you will know it when you feel it. You will know it when you feel it toward something. And there are easier beings to feel it toward than others. It's hard to hate a chipmunk. <laughs> Really, it's like there's something about them that just kind of lifts up the heart and makes us happy. And it's like, just check it out. Watch a chipmunk for a while. It's so... Taste it. Get a sense of what that tastes like and then see if you can feel it toward yourself. You can't teach somebody to feel that toward a chipmunk, right? It's just, it's like natural. It's natural. But it, it all gets so covered over in our busyness. 
So part of the loving-kindness practice is truly, again and again, remembering to find our heart. And if you lose it, you know, just touch your heart. Just, it's that simple, just coming home, touching the heart. Just, okay, here again, again. Keep it that quiet. Keep it that simple. And then learning how to sustain the attention there. We call it abiding. And it's out of the sustaining. And again, we get this huge expectation of what we should be able to do. And then we get all this doubt about ourselves. And it's really maybe we can sustain that for two seconds. That's good practice. And it's out of that just dropping in as best we can and then seeing what happens. And understanding will inevitably happen. You just, it's just a matter of trusting again and again that the present moment experience um, with a lot of patience will yield everything because it's all there. Understanding that everything is already within us that we need. I, in my last retreat, that's what I would incline toward at the beginning of a lot of sittings and walkings. I would just incline my attention toward that understanding that all I needed was already within me. And just, you know, that just again and again, just that simplicity of making that intention and letting go and just seeing what happens, you'd be surprised at the power of our own intention. It, it makes its way into us, but as I said, I think this morning, if you think of more like sand on a beach, and when water goes into the sand, it just goes in, right? It finds its way over all the little pebbles. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't try to make its way, like through willpower, battering ram through every little grain of sand. It flows around it. And so start again to taste this receptive attention where you can receive a little bit of kindness. And let it, let, see if you can let it go into the body as we did this morning in any way. Even if you just did that with your hands, the whole retreat, it would make a huge difference. We are so conceptual. We are so in our heads. And, and just getting the sense of what the, a little bit of kindness might feel like, which we use the benefactor for. We use that easiest being for to shift, it's like an anchor. You get the taste of what that, however we might say, the loving kindness, however we might taste that. It doesn't have to be cathartic. It doesn't have to be like a huge wind that knocks you over. It's often very quiet. It's sometimes it's almost, you know, invisible. We can barely feel it but some, some kind of connection is there. I was just teaching a three-week retreat in an island in 
pretty far up in British Columbia. Um, and there's a lot of wildlife that you feel like um, have more of a sense of home there than humans in a way. It's like the ratio of humans to other beings. It feels a little more um, <laughs> like we're, the humans aren't overwhelming nature. And one day I, I finally got out for a walk and it's a very rocky beach and it's hard to walk on the rocks and I went down pretty far and I just sat there for a little bit and I was wondering what this strange thing was in the water, kind of wiggling along. And then um, this otter came up on a rock and it had a big fish, like a huge fish in its mouth. Uh, and it just looked like it was just king of the ocean. You know, just, it, just, it, was, it was amazing how it exuded this kind of greatness <laughs> happiness. Uh, and there was an eagle up in this tree, you know, way up high watching this otter. And then after some time, it was like this otter was just flaunting this <laughs> fish. It wasn't really even eating it. It was just like, look at what I have to the eagle. And then the eagle finally just, it was amazing. It just swooped down, like so fast. And the otter waited and waited and waited. And at the last second, it jumped in the water. It was a fish, and the eagle missed it, you know. And it was like, wow. It was so, you know, we don't get to see these things that often. The otter did this three times. You know, it came back up on the rock. No hurry to eat this fish. And it's just, you know, more intense than ever. It's just like, <laughs> and it's like, and the eagle waited. This took a long time. The eagle waited, waited, you know, thinking. It's all that kind of trying to wait and catch the other being off guard, right? And then it just faster than the last time. Each time it was more intense. And then just at the last second, the otter would dive down. And then, you know, the eagle went back up. And the otter came up, and the otter's waiting, and the eagle finally like, like went behind the otter. It's so amazing. And it waited, and it waited, and it waited. It was like 15 more minutes. And then it tried to get the otter from behind. And you just don't think the otter's even noticing. And then the otter went down again with You know, and it's um, mindfulness practice, being with the nature of how things are. It's like otters are otters, and eagles are eagles, and Michelles are Michelles, you know, and we're just, we are how we are, you know, and then we can work with those conditions of how we are. But it's being able to respect, in some ways, the nature of how we are with kindness. And then see if we can find these deeper places that are so universal of compassion, of loving kindness, of appreciative joy, of equanimity, of care, understanding. And I think that sometimes when I get the privilege of witnessing these things, it's like you can see how much humor and gratitude and forgiveness we need. There's a poem by Galway Cannell that I think kind of 
touches what it's like to first try to make sense of this when we're, when we're young. It's called First Song. Then it was dusk in Illinois. The small boy, after an afternoon of carding dung, hung on a rail fence, a sapped thing, weary to crying, weary to crying. Dark was growing tall, and he began to hear the pond frogs all calling on his ear with what seemed their joy. Soon their sound was pleasant for a boy listening in the smoky dusk and the nightfall of Illinois. And from the fields, two small boys came bearing cornstalk violins, and they rubbed the cornstalk bows with rosins, and the three sat there scraping their joy. It was now fine music the frogs and the boys did in the towering Illinois twilight make, and into dark, in spite of a shoulder's ache, a boy's hunched body loved out of a stock the first song of his happiness, and the song woke his heart to the darkness and to the sadness of joy. I think it's not so good to try to explain a poem, or, but you can feel in it that sense of the inclusiveness of the pain, the love, not you know the unconditionalness of it. It's not like there's a um, shying away from the weariness or the hardness of life, but also appreciating that we can feel joy, yeah, that we can come to terms with with how things are, and know that it's like a ticket. The more we can be with things as they are, the more kind we can be. And the more kind we can be, the more we can be with things as they are, and that that is the journey. So we can say this, you know, but I just want to encourage you, as you know, at the beginning of the retreat, to just set that stage for seeing that sometimes when we see that we're kind at times, that we might be able to be with a breath in a way that we've never been before. And it might not be with a breath, but there's just some way that you start to see that relationship between kindness, that softening of the heart, and the ability to genuinely be interested in life as it is, rather than how we want it to be. This is, this is the teaching again and again. And whether we're finding that the practice works um, more easy for us, you know, the Buddha taught the metta one way, and then there was a whole um, development of the metta practice in the commentaries after he lived. And there's a reason for that. You know, we needed more. <laughs> we needed more than, than that wordless abiding and that, that just filling oneself up with metta and then opening it up. It's, like a, it's called radiating. But if you think of your body and mind and heart as an empty glass and the metta 
being like pouring water into that empty glass, eventually what happens? The water will start to flow out of the glass all over. And this is what the Buddha's offering was. It's like that teaching that you start with yourself and then you just start radiating it. He didn't bring, he didn't bring up all these categories of benefactor, dear friend, neutral, but they were developed because they were helpful for some people. So what we're offering is, as I said last night, check it out. What I have found helpful is both. That, that you know, you can do that wordless, quiet abiding in it, and, and also with the six sense doors, that you might be doing walking meditation, hear a car, and you can either relate to that sound as an interruption or a noise, or you might be in the hall and hear a cough, and you can either relate to that as an interruption or as a noise, or you can actually send metta. <laughs> you know, that's quite the option, right? And that, like that, that's the, that's the energy field I'm talking about. That you can be walking down the hallway and grumpy as anything, and maybe going, may you be happy in your head to the person walking beside you might pull yourself out of that mental state, you know, and how wonderful a way to do that. So that idea that we understand, this is the genuine wisdom, the understanding that yes, the person next to you in the room wants to be happy just as much as you do. And when, you know, we're in a silent retreat, we often think that we're the ones going through the worst time, right? We're the sleepiest, we're the most bored, we're, the, we're having the most pain, whatever. But if you heard what's going on in everybody's minds, you'd probably run out of here, you know, <laughs> sobbing. You know, it's just like, just multiply what's going on in your mind toward everybody else. And it's like, loud. Tragic. I'm serious. If you listen to the content of our thinking, it's amazing how painful it is. And so like the the beings that I've met that have inspired me, that are genuinely happy, you know, there's a reason for it. They're actually, they've actually cultivated loving kindness. And they're really happy. And not Pollyanna happy. So if you look at the the teaching again on loving-kindness, the traditional description of what isn't loving-kindness is called the near enemies and the far enemies. Tra- these are translations. So the, the near enemy means that the experience seems so much like loving-kindness, it, it seduces us to thinking it's really unconditional love, but it's quite conditional. So any kind of attached love, romantic love, sentimentality, nostalgia, you know, all of, all of that range of what we tend to use as the word love. If you listen to the radio, you know, you'll get to hear a lot of it. You know, it's like that, this isn't saying again that it's wrong or bad, that that isn't what it means. It means that it isn't unconditional. That's all. And the experience that is really not, it's the opposite of loving-kindness, is, 
you know, self-hatred, hatred of others. One of my favorite, again, descriptions of this is a teacher named Maya Baba from India came to Virginia. He's not alive anymore. Um, but he described this process of love as um, when two people are angry at each other. He said that they speak very loudly and they tend to even shout. And that when two people are deeply in love, they whisper and sometimes don't need words at all. And that, that, that sense of like when we're, when we're so angry at ourselves or another, we feel so separate. And that process, of course, that sense of the attached love, the sentimentality, the nostalgia, all of that is in that realm of a pleasant, sometimes pleasant, sometimes painful, the longing. The longing gets us closer to the sense of, well, what's conditional, what is unconditional. You can usually tell by if there's a sense of, you know, maybe liking one or two people and the rest are sort of not likable, right? That's a kind of test whether something's conditional or unconditional. And you, it's great to play it out with nature. Just see your relationship between when you might see a hummingbird and when you might see a slug or something. You know, you just, you just watch that way in which we pick and choose. You know, we rather see an eagle than a sparrow. I mean, what is that? You know, robins are sort of, well, they're okay. You know, <laughs> want to see a deer. Whatever we're doing, it's crazy. But it's, we do it, and it's being able to have some humor with it some forgiveness, and then be able to begin again and just see a being, a human otherwise, and see if we can have this connection that's deeper than the judgment, that's deeper than that knee-jerk reaction conditioning. If you're new, one of the reasons that we encourage people to be silent and to not look at each other There's a reason. It's not some arbitrary, (laughs) weird thing to make us all look like zombies. You know, it's it's. There's a reason for it, and the reason is that if you seclude your eyes enough, that when you finally do look, you'll see that the judgment will happen faster than you can control. If you look at someone, it'll be instant. We can't control it. So if you're, if you're just looking, 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 you'll be just inundated and there won't be any, any way to see it clearly. But if, you, if you're quiet and you stay restrained, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's called renunciation, but the motivation, again, is kindness. The motivation is that we care so much that we want to understand how can we be free in this. And so that you don't try to stop the judgment, but you try to be and have enough practice to be quiet enough so that when you, can, you do look and you see the judgment, you don't buy into it. It's just judging. And then, okay, okay in a metta retreat, then you would say, oh, ha, 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 judging. Okay, may you be happy. 
or you know whatever whatever is working for you to like stay connected with wishing well may you be safe and protected from my judgments <laughs> may i be safe and protected from your judgments i'm not saying to do that but it's actually true <laughs> you know the more loving kindness there is the more we're protected the more everybody's protected When I first moved to Hawaii in 1983, I decided I should learn um, something there that I hadn't had the opportunity to do around here. And uh, I took this flower arranging class, but the first one I took was very traditional Japanese. And the teacher was Japanese, and she didn't speak English. And I was the only person in the class that spoke English and not Japanese. It's like everyone spoke Japanese, and it was very, very serious, incredibly serious. And how traditionally um, it it was taught was that you would sit there and watch the teacher make a flower arrangement. And then, I didn't know this, of course. No one explained it. And then you were supposed to copy it, and no questions. It's like that's not the style, the old style, uh, the ancient Japanese way of teaching. (laughs) I just didn't fit in well in the class. Um, I just never could make my flower arrangement look like this teacher's, and I didn't understand what we were doing. Um, And then eventually I found this class with this woman that, uh, I would call it like the shikantaza, or choiceless awareness of Japanese flower arranging. She like taught the exact opposite. Uh, But she had a method. And the method was you weren't allowed to make a flower arrangement. And you had to take your flower. You, were, you kind of, it was very simple. You had maybe three flowers at the most and maybe a few ferns or something. But you had to spend a long time with your flower. And you just, you didn't look at your vase. You didn't try to make an arrangement. And you, you just kept looking at your flower. And she taught you to find the most beautiful angle of the flower. Take a long time with that. And then you, you saw that most beautiful angle, and you put your flower in the, in the frog, you stuck it in the vase at that angle. And that was not that hard, actually. But then the second flower, you had to do the same thing, and you couldn't try to match it up with what you had put in there. You, couldn't, you still weren't allowed to make an arrangement. So you, you just looked and looked, and you found the most beautiful angle, not thinking, put it in. That was hard. And then the third one was almost impossible. Like the desire to make something the way I wanted it to be. And, she, and I'd, I'd like cheat, you know, I'd be like, <laughs> and she'd go, Michelle, you're trying, you're trying. Okay, you know, and just trusting. It was a, such a deep trust that that most beautiful angle was what mattered. And the metta practice is the same. You're, you're, you're trusting that there's this inner goodness, that there's this inner worthiness that we all have. It's unconditional. Not, you know, it's not like one of us is more special than the other in this. It's, like, it's just that it gets so encrusted and so hidden. And that's what is actually unconditional. So I don't mean that we walk around and it's like, again, 
the Pollyanna kind of metta is not metta. That, that just totally avoiding the shadow side of us all isn't metta. But it, that, the metta is being willing to actually tune into the truth of goodness, the truth of worthiness. It's not getting so... Um, the heart like vinegar, right? The sarcasm, the defeat, the brokenness, you know, the, just that poisonous disdain, the cynicism that is such a protection. It's being willing to feel vulnerable enough, to open enough to receive your own goodness your own worthiness. So if you find it hard, it is. Because we don't want to feel that. It, it's like we, then we feel the hurt and the loss and the just not being able to control. You know, the best thing about being close to someone or yourself, the whole idea of intimacy is you get to see how you can't control. You know, you know, we've all been through it. We can't control the other person, no matter how much we try. It's like, wow. So, you know, we try all these things, but it's actually we find out that that isn't love. It's control. I have a, a student from many years ago that would come to retreats and, you know, just once a year. But he was the type of person that people wouldn't want to sit around. And I won't go into details, but there would be this huge, <laughs> like, space around this person. And I would just feel like, oh, oh, this is so painful. But, you know, you can't make people do that, you know, sit near someone they can't handle. Um, and over the years, that you know, maybe three years went by, and like there wasn't much change in this person. And then one year, this woman sat next to him. And she came in for an interview with me, and I, I didn't say much, but I said, you know, I just wonder, you know, why did you sit there? And she was brand new, and she said, you know, I thought to myself, if he can do this metta practice, then I can. It was so moving to me. It was just like, oh. And they both blossomed in that retreat. It was like just that willingness and that understanding that that was going to be helpful for her. Helped her so much, and it helps them so much. And then maybe another retreat or two came by, you know, just that commitment to a little metta every year. And I got a note that is like, oh, I had this glimpse of my own goodness. You know, it's just, for some of us, it's really hard. Like, I feel like if I can get up in front of you and say, if I can do this, you can, it's true. The self-hatred, my conditioning, it's merciless. And it, you know, it was the hardest thing I've done and it continues to be not that challenging as it used to be, but still challenging, that, that practice of being willing to feel the unlovability, you know, to feel the worthlessness, and then make space for a connection with that, not to try to make that go away, to connect with it, to feel the vulnerability, 
and then find the loving kindness in there and the compassion. It's just, ah, it's such a powerful process, but sometimes excruciating. And then this this last time, this last time I was with this student, it's like, oh my God, he was saying things like, oh, you know, I'm really genuinely able to wish people well now and myself well. Now and then, I don't want you to turn that into 100% of the time. That's what's happening. That's not what's happening for this person. But there's, a, you know, remarkable shifts. And that's what happened for me. There were just like these shifts that just came through the patience of putting in my time, putting in my time and pacing it. You know, the reason Jesse taught the Vipassana today, the mindfulness practice, is to know that when we can't do the metta anymore, it's not a failure. It's not like there's something wrong. We need a rest. And just, just when we shift to the Vipassana course, we're going to say you know, the same thing, but the opposite. We'll say, you know, when you can't do this being with the things as they are over and over, do the metta as a rest. <coughs> With the, um, this wonderful age of the internet, when I'm in, at home on the big island in Hawaii, I like to look at the map of the weather because there's so many colors. It's just got you know, all these different islands in the middle of the Pacific. It's always pretty interesting weather. And they do these beautiful greens and blues and yellows and... Um, you know, sometimes you open it up and it's just like, wow. (laughs) And one time there was this color I'd never seen before. And I was so excited. What is this? You know, and it it was um, like a, out out at sea, there's these little mini tornadoes. And so this was new for me to see. And the, the warning on it said, all boats seek safe harbor immediately. And I thought, oh, that's just like teaching meditation. You know, you know, it's just like sometimes it's so intense, right? That a storm will come and we'll say, okay, that's what anchoring's for. Seek safe harbor immediately. And then you go through the things, the benefactor, try the easy being, try yourself, try being with things as they are. Stand up. You know, just you go through the ways in which, you know, sometimes it feels like nothing's working and you wait. It's like you have that sense of, okay, this is how it is. And we take refuge in that it's impermanent. The benefactor, that's a very old-fashioned word, yeah, for our culture. And uh, we translate that into the easiest being for us to wish well. And that's meant to be a safe harbor over time. 
And you'll find that you might cultivate several over a lifetime, maybe more. Uh, But it's really to get a sense of what a lifeline a benefactor really is. You know, and that, that there is a way in which, as that poem, the poem with a little boy and the weariness of life that happens even when we're young, that, you know, sometimes we're not very protected uh, or we are protected, but it's universal to find it difficult to come to terms with how this world really is. So if you look at who you might bring to mind in the human realm, or the other other aspects of life. I mean, I I always forget to say this, but like when I think of my great niece, I would imagine that she might pick a fountain in a mall. You know, it might not be a lake or a tree. You know, I mean, she would she would probably pick some humans, but she'd also, you know, it's like we live in a a changing world, and it's really, you know, it could be a telephone pole. It's really finding something that actually you feel a connection with. And to know that that's that's meant to be when we feel that sense of, you know, seek safe harbor immediately, that we cultivate something like a lifeline. And that we can cultivate it. Because it's meant to be that we, we connect with that place being have a few human otherwise, and that we find our own heart again through this other being or other place. It's like the connection with the goodness of the other is an entry point into our own goodness when we lose our sense of our own goodness. So traditionally, you know, when I first did metta practice, the fir- I did it for uh, six six weeks or two months, I think it was two months, but anyway, um, Sayadaw Upandita was my teacher at the time, and he kept me with the benefactor and myself for a month. You know, we didn't, we didn't move quickly. And so, you know, when, you, when you're new to this and you don't understand, you know, the kind of method or why, why that is is because you really, really try to cultivate this lifeline for a lifetime. It's not meant to be just for this retreat. So for some people, if yourself, if you are easiest, then you would start there. And if you're not the easiest, then you start with a benefactor. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you just find your way here. And if you don't find a benefactor, you might shift to a dear friend. We'll, we'll gradually introduce this stuff in a few days. But the idea is that you go back and forth, cultivate, and then you have a backup. So maybe you're doing, you know, a human being, but after a while that doesn't quite work. You don't, you don't flip from one to the other, but you kind of have a backup then, you know, you're meant to go to yourself at some point. But wherever it's difficult, you don't push. This is not being done through a battering ram. It's being done through love. So the means and ends are the same. There's a a wonderful... uh, Sayadaw in Burma, we nicknamed him the Happy Sayadaw. 
um, a Sayadaw is like an abbot of a monastery, but very well learned, um, usually have a lot of textual, textual knowledge as well as great practice. And when he taught me about loving-kindness practice, and I consider him the happiest human beings, being I've met, it's like he, he acted out, it's like his hand was loving-kindness. And he just went, <laughs> and then this hand was loving kindness, and he just was like, oh, no self-hatred, just, you know, mm, touch your head, touch your shoulders. Just that, that sense of the awareness, learning how your awareness can be like a touch of love, of kindness, a touch of kindness. And I've had people hear this, and, you know, I've seen one woman that had really hard time with metta. She would just touch her thumb the whole retreat that was all she could take and that was enough that's where she started and it grew it's like you know that's the idea my one of my greatest teachers her name is Deepama she's no longer alive but usually the practices are fairly simple she taught me at night, when you lie down to go to sleep, touch your heart center, do some loving kindness, and then feel your breath come and go. It's like, it's a five second practice. And you know, why can't we do that? What is that, what is about that habit that is so healthy? But Jen, again, these teachers that I've trusted the most actually physically touch themselves. They show you this is how this attention or awareness is. It's, it's attention with loving kindness. Now I know we are from a different culture, so none of us are going to walk around at this retreat doing that. I know that. But <laughs> the idea is that maybe we learn at night to just, before you go to sleep, to go, oh yeah, may I feel safe and protected, or may I be peaceful. Anything, anything that works for you to, or just call up the metta and be quiet. Just be with things as they are. When you are around a human being that can radiate some loving kindness. It's really inspiring because, you know, we know somewhere in us that we, we are capable of that. It's like for me, Deepama was so, so amazing. She just blessed everything. She just blessed, you know, she blessed the airplane pilot. She blessed everyone in the airport. She just just would radiate you with loving kindness. And it's um, very powerful to, to, again, sense, because there really is no separation between us and another. When you feel that glimpse of our potential, in, in a way I would say it's more than our potential, it's our heart, it's the birthright. Um, we're set on our course. We see the way. And there's a willingness to put up with all the ways in which we don't feel metta. You know, there's more courage to go, okay, if she could do it, I can do it. 
how sometimes this meant this practice is meant to be a very um, deeply uh, reassuring practice. It's it's like uh, my last few retreats, my own retreats. I felt like if I could, I would want to have an IV drip for you know, just like everybody have their own little IV drip next to them and their cushion, and it would be reassurance that was in the drip. You know, we tend to need so much reassurance that we're okay. And it, it's like, that is a form of metta. I, I can't even tell you how much we need it. it. It's People pretend that they don't, but we really do. We need this, are, am I doing it okay? Is, am I okay? Like it's, and once we have that loving kindness, we can be with things as they are. So anything you can do to sort of have patience with that process, but to know that you are not alone. You know, it's, it's a fundamental issue for us. And just even, I, I just will say it. I will use my hand and just say, it's okay. I will tell the cells of my body, it's okay. It's okay. Then can be with anything. You can be with anything if you know your whole being, the way we are, is okay. So because we don't have the drip, (laughs) I imagine the drip for everyone, you know, and we just, we emanate it. We're here to reassure us all that fundamentally that goodness and worthiness is the truth of how things are. I'm going to end with a, a poem by Pablo Neruda, translated by Robert Bly, called Ode to My Socks. Our socks are very ordinary. That's why I'm reading it. Mara Mori brought me a pair of socks, which she knitted herself with her sheep herder's hands. Two socks as soft as rabbits. I slipped my feet into them as if they were two cases knitted with threads of twilight and goatskin. Violent socks, my feet were two fish made of wool, two long sharks, sea blue, shot through by one golden thread, two immense blackbirds, two cannons. My feet were honored in this way by these heavenly socks. They were so handsome for the first time, my feet seemed to me unacceptable, like two decrepit firemen, firemen unworthy of that woven fire of those glowing socks. Nevertheless, I resisted the sharp temptation to save them somewhere, as schoolboys keep fireflies, as learned men collect sacred texts, I resisted the mad impulse to put them in a golden cage and each day give them birdseed and pieces of pink melon like explorers in the jungle who hand over the very rare green deer to the spit and eat it with remorse. I stretched out my feet and pulled on the magnificent socks and then my shoes. The moral of my ode is this. Beauty is twice beauty. And what is good is doubly good when it is a matter of two socks made of wool in winter.
so our life is doubly good when we can access loving kindness. Let's sit for a minute. May we live with genuine kindness and genuine wisdom. It's time for walking on this beautiful spring night. And then uh, there's a sitting at 9 o'clock. And please come. It won't be as long as it even says on the schedule. We'll learn the metta chant. And it's a wonderful way to... That sitting is so quiet and so peaceful and such a beautiful way to transition to sleep. So please come. Have a good walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.